This is a question and an answer session with Joel titled Practicing at Work, recorded May 28, 1995, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. All right, who's got a question? Me. Go. Uh, I always have a question. <laughs> um, I was really intrigued uh, as you were on the aphorisms of uh, Wolf. Yes. That you made a comment that uh, one of his works had to do with consciousness without objects, I think. And the other thing you said was, I think this is what you said, correct me if I'm incorrect here, um, reality arising in consciousness. Did you say that? If I said reality, I was loosely speaking. Let's say form arising in form consciousness. Form arising in Could you... That's my question. Okay. Those, those two, those two, those two things. Dr. Wolf's basic term, uh, technical term for reality is consciousness without an object and consciousness without a subject. Now, what that means is, in, in essence, there is nothing but consciousness. <coughs> And this is said in many traditions in a less technical sense. There's nothing but God, for instance. Or uh, the whole Buddhist teaching about the emptiness of all phenomena. And there are various ways of saying in Buddhism, the, the essence of all things is shunyata. And you will find in all traditions that enlightenment or realization or whatever, uh, whatever term is used is the realization there is no self. Or in Hinduism, it's put, the self is that ultimate consciousness, the, that thou art, tat vat sami. They all end up saying the same thing. And the important, um, the, uh, the important point of this and the way that the reason Dr. Wolf expresses it in this very technical way is that within consciousness itself, there are no real distinctions. All distinctions are imaginary. And so our problem is, and our suffering arises from, our mistaking imaginary distinctions to be real. And then the most important distinction in our lives is the distinction between subject and object, I and other, self and world, and so forth. What he describes in these aphorisms is, if this is true, how is it then that a world of form arises? And this is what these aphorisms lay out. And this is not a, a discussion of how the world was created in the sense that uh, Genesis talks about it at some date in the past. This is the moment-to-moment -moment arising of all this. And the key thing here is that he keeps coming back to, consciousness without an object is. That's his first aphorism, I believe. I think that's the way he phrases it. Well, let me look up here, see if I can find it quickly. Let's, he would appreciate it if we were very exact. <laughs> well, let me read you just the first few, and then everybody can get an idea of what we're talking about here. Consciousness without an object is. That's the first one. And by the way, whenever he says conscious without an object, he means conscious without an object and without a subject. That's the, the full... Uh, expression, which he said in other places very clearly. Before objects were, consciousness without an object is. 
Though objects seem to exist, consciousness without an object is. When objects vanish, yet remaining through all unaffected, consciousness without an object is. Outside of consciousness without an object, nothing is. Within the bosom of consciousness without an object lies the power of awareness which projects objects. Now that's the key phrase here. If you're watching your own, uh, your own experience, your own situation, if you can watch it very, very closely, if you've trained your mind, for instance, in meditation, you, you will see that all this is true right there in every single moment, so to speak. But at a certain point, this power of awareness projects objects, cr actually creates them in the moment. I would call it the power of imagination. Uh, in the Christian tradition, it's called the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And without Him was not anything made that was made. This is the Word, the, the Logos, this, this power of thought, of imagination. When objects are projected, the power of awareness as subject is presupposed, yet consciousness without an object remains unchanged. So once this, this, uh, this imagination, this power of projection goes into effect, it projects an object and then it appears that someone is looking at this object. So as an object comes into being, a subject comes into being, or an apparent subject, I should say, because there's a distinction. Once you have an object, you have a distinction. Now, what we don't recognize is this distinction is imaginary. And this is what causes all our problems. And then he goes on, um, when consciousness of objects is born, then likewise consciousness of the absence of objects arises. So we become aware of impermanence. Here's an object, and then there's no object. Uh, consciousness of objects is the universe. Consciousness of the absence of objects is nirvana. And he goes on and on and on. I won't go through all this aphorisms. But the idea here is that if you read the aphorisms, ponder them, and then look into your own experience really carefully, you can begin to see, experientially see, what he's talking about. And the idea is that if you actually, you could take this, read it from the first aphorism to the last, and then start working backwards. Because obviously the last one's the most gross, so to speak. You know, that's our, our immediate level of experience. And then if you could work and try to read it and try to understand that in your experience, see, and then go to the, the one before and the one before and sort of work your way backwards. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit like what Ramana Maharshi talks about, tracing the I thought back to its source, whenever the thought of I arises. And, and the thought of I always arises in relation to objects. Is that helpful? Do you want to yeah. continue? Uh, uh, more? Well, you, I think the thing that struck me the most was the Buddhist, uh, relating it to me because I am a Buddhist, is uh, the, the term practica samuppada, codependent origination. That is to say that the emptiness, shunyata, uh, that, that undifferentiated ground of being that we, that we all are a part of and exist in, that we are in complete relationship to, and it is that illusion that, that anything that is out there 
does not arise except in relationship to consciousness itself. It's not separate from it, really. Yeah, but if we really want to be technical, and since we're talking about Dr. Sure. Wolf, this is one of the things that he tried to do as much as possible, and you can never really, mm -hmm. you know, um, encompass any of this ultimately in language, but um, the, even the word relationship is deceptive here. To say we're in relationship to that ground of undifferentiated being implies a distinction that is real, and a lot of people uh, operate... Uh, trying to deepen their relationship and so forth, which is fine. I mean, it's a good uh, relative step in the path. But ultimately, the thing to see is you're not in any relationship to it. That's what you are. And in, in fact, it's the simplicity of it that, that, that deceives us. The closest I know how to say is, look, if you look at your own experience, you will see there is nothing but consciousness and objects or forms arising in consciousness. That's all there is, just in your own experience. I mean, it's so simple, and our minds create all sorts of other worlds and entities and so forth behind all this, but that is, at any given moment, that's all that's happening. Now, even that, I've said, there's nothing but consciousness and. Now, the, there's no way in language to, to subtract out the and, except to say, uh, perhaps, that the then to see the objects that are rising in consciousness are themselves not other than that consciousness. So there's not even a distinction. It's not like consciousness is over here and objects are rising in them. Uh, a very common metaphor in many traditions, for instance, is space and objects in space, or the sky and clouds in the sky. The mind consciousness is like the sky, and then all this form and stuff is like weather various cloud or weather formations arising in the sky. But even there, we still have this dichotomy. You know, so this gets you close. But it's that the, the sky itself is what creates weather in, in our metaphor. <clears throat> uh, one of my favorite ones that most everybody here, I think, has seen is the rope. You tie a knot in a rope. Now, the knot is not other than the rope. You see, and, and, and that's a nice metaphor way of saying the relationship between consciousness and objects. So in, in a way it's scary to really take that seriously, that you are that ground. Mm -hmm. There is no other you than that ground. That's it. Period, you know. Because and it robs us of um a relationship in a certain sense. We can no longer struggle with entering into a relationship and so forth because that's an illusion. That is the illusion, the delusion. And even when we start, when we use the word consciousness, even when we say consciousness without a subject or without an object, you know, the very word implies that there is some boundary there. I mean, just in our speech, that there's something beyond consciousness. One of the reasons Buddhists don't like to use, if they can help it, any positive term, because the positive term uh, the mind can seize on. We think of consciousness as something. So there are a lot of uh, views around today, for instance, that consciousness is evolving. Well, consciousness is an, uh, that means consciousness is some sort of thing that can change. Consciousness remains unchanged, always, in that sense. And yet, in another sense, it's, you know, it's changing. And there are a lot of metaphors for that, you know, the... Um, 
the circle that goes round and round in place. In one sense it changes, but in another sense it doesn't change, and so forth. Mm -hmm. All metaphors to try to cut through the, these paradoxes that our language and, and behind our language are thought, and behind our thought this power of imagination or this power of projection uh, creates for us. I was interested in the relationship between inquiry and the no mind. I'm not sure what the question is. The, the fact that one, they seem paradoxical. And I've been involved with that paradox a lot. And it seems a useful paradox, actually. And when I understand it, I don't have a question. But uh, when the mind gets really... Um, when there's a lot of turmoil, especially from working a lot and stuff, completely escapes me. And so I was thinking this would be an opportunity while mind is in turmoil <laughs> to get one of those kind of hits. <laughs> well, um, inquiry as a practice presupposes someone inquiring. And ultimately, inquiry turns back on itself and, and asks the question, who is making this inquiry? And if you pursue this, you'll find that you cannot find anyone making any inquiry. So the question, in a certain sense, remains unanswered. There is no question. You don't know. And so it's basically don't know mine. Yeah, well, I guess... <laughs> but, but don't know mine has to be convinced that it doesn't know. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. Do you see, this is... Th there's a difference between a mundane, we might call it, don't know mind... And a resignation. And a, and a realized don't know mind. The mundane don't know mind, which we all experience in, in relative ways, doesn't know but is convinced that someone knows or that an answer is possible. And this, by the way, is a great trap on a spiritual path because you don't know but you're convinced your teacher knows or, or some realized person knows. But the, the difference is the, the realized person doesn't know any more than you know except the realized person knows that there's nothing to know. You see what I mean? So inquiry, the relationship between inquiry and don't know mind, really is that inquiry, if it's done properly, is, is guided properly, is designed to end up not with an answer, but with the conviction that there is no answer. No I can be found. There is nobody home. Yeah. Now, this is, you know, this, this can operate at an intellectual level, but it has to operate much deeper than that because intellectually you can understand that, but that's not don't know mind. You see, the intellect thinks, oh, now I understand. The intellect's very happy with an answer. But it doesn't affect your life, as you will see. You go out and try and you live your life, and you won't live your life as though no one's home. You'll still suspect, I mean, you'll still psychologically operate as though someone were home. So it has to be a, a, a thorough, uh, total realization of don't know mind. Now again, one of the problems with this, people get close to this, but in point of fact, from a psychological point of view, we might say that's very scary. Yeah. You're never going to know what you want to know. All the things you want to know. You're never going to know. Now, the paradox is, by not knowing, suddenly, it's not that you know, it'd be better to say all the questions dissolve. They all, from, from, the, from the point of view of realization, they seem to be ludicrous questions, you know? It's like uh, questions like, oh, I said before, like uh, somebody comes to you and says, um, you know, what, what do you think I should feed my unicorn? Uh, I mean, should I feed oats or uh, grass? Or I'm not sure how you care for a unicorn. 
Now, you know, I, unless you believe in unicorns, it's a ludicrous question. There's no answer to that question that makes any sense except to say there are no unicorns. And so if the person who's struggling with a problem of what to feed their unicorn and is really uh, troubled by it, do you know what I mean? Until they realize there are no unicorns, there's really no solution to their problem. And they may say to you, yes, yes, I know intellectually there are no unicorns, but I mean, from we live in a practical world here, you know, the relative world. I hear this all the time, you know what I mean? So in the meantime, I mean, should I feed it oats or, you know? <laughs> Or isn't it better to, I, this is a great one, isn't it better to, um, I know there's no unicorn and ultimately that's what realization is about, but don't you have to strengthen your unicorn before you can surrender it? I mean, all these questions are bizarre and bananas, you know, from the point of view of don't know mind. Because what the, 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 there is no unicorn, there's no answer, you see, at that level. So it's really, it's, it's just the trap of the intellect, and and the more you use the intellect to try to solve it, you just get in deeper. Not necessarily. Okay. Dr. This, Wolf's a good example. This is really the, the, right. kind of the question I think that I I think it's rare, I mean, just historically rare, but if you completely trust your intellect, a logic, let's say, if you really uh, will follow logic to its and believe its conclusions and not dismiss them because they sound uh, they start to sound absurd if you do that you can follow a logic that will convince you there is no i in there it was this is what uh, this was plato's whole method and it was what dr wolf uh did and what led to his realization he pursued this intellectually but the difference is he took his intellect absolutely seriously, as seriously as most people take things like their emotions and, and so forth. Do you know what I mean? And so when he got to the point when uh, he, he had this, what began as an intellectual realization, as he put it, there I am already that which I am seeking, it was so profound to him that, as he said, all seeking ceased. That means... Uh, emotional seeking, psychological seeking, you know, it just, all effort ended. This is don't know mind in the sense that there was nothing more to do. And he didn't, he just arrived there and he didn't expect anything. This was just as far as the intellect could go. And then suddenly, as he expressed it, the heavens opened up. So the intellect didn't it convince them there was nothing to do. Really, see, if you are already that what you're seeking, what are you, what are you seeking? What are you doing? The mind stops at that point. There's nothing more for the mind to do. It, it just comes to a dead stop. Hey, I can, I can see that in, in, for myself, there seem to be two levels of the intellect operating. There is a, there's a kind of a, it's sort of a superficial intellectual inquiry that goes on, especially when I'm, when I'm working. And I kind of get diluted out, and my, my, my ability to really concentrate or to focus my attention just kind of gets dissipated. And I get off on all kinds of bizarre tangents and stuff that just kind of just get dissipated. Uh, and then when, I'm, when I have time where I'm, I'm able just to be quiet, the attention seems to be take on a different form, and the intellect does seem to work like you described more. And... But I, I get confused between the two, and I get confused sometimes when like, fatigue is, a, is, a, is an active factor in this thing, in the kind of superficial 
um, intellect, and, and the two kind of just kind of get muddied up together. And and so this kind of leads into another question. I, I sometimes wonder about the kind of work that I do, as because it is so um, <coughs> is so intense. A lot of times, I will I will just kind of get caught in a stream of of kind of anxiety about what I'm doing, and as I get into it, this inertia just kind of carries me away. I feel the sense of being somebody in a real kind of solid way. And it's almost like I'm transformed. And when I go into the workplace, when this happens, it's like being somebody. It's like, it's kind of like what I've come to is this is the sense of self and it's in its absolute sense. And, you know, it's like it, it's completely believes all of these conditions. It has to believe all of the images in order that there are no medication errors. And, and the difference between the absolute and this relative get murky. There's like a murkiness that starts to get generated. And I sometimes wonder if maybe the job itself is just perpetuating this. Because I'll, I'll be off for, say, a week or five or six days or something, and there seems to be incredible amounts of clarity that arise. And then when I'm back at work, Sometimes it doesn't happen, but when it does happen, it's really profound. And, and, and so I go back and forth thinking, well, this is an impetus for understanding. I, I just need to allow this and just, and just continue to open to this bizarre reactiveness that's happening and continue to examine it. But the problem is that I can't examine it because I'm so diluted out. And so, yeah. Yes, okay. Um, <laughs> let me see if I can uh, uh, break can, your question you down some that, <laughs> <laughs> into succinct pieces here to try and deal with it that way. Uh, let's take the last one first, and the, the grossest level. Um, is your job contributing to your delusion, so to speak, contributing to this um, having a solid sense of self and then the anxieties about that and so forth. And because when you, when you are off from your job, when you go on retreat or have space, you get a kind of clarity. Uh, and your job is being a nurse, and I think that's important here. Doing hospital work has traditionally in uh, in many traditions been considered a prime place to do spiritual practice. And one of the reasons is because you really have an opportunity to serve, to do karma yoga in a very clear way, which in really in most forms of work you are, but it's not so direct and clear. So hospital work is, is very um, good in that sense because you constantly all day have this opportunity to A, be working directly with people who uh, need help and in a position to give help and so forth. And so that's a very, very rich field for practice. And then there are two ways to approach this. And it seems to be you've been approaching it from the point of view of trying to cultivate mindfulness and maintain mindfulness during the practice, uh, during your work, rather. And you said you're you seem, your intellect seems to work on two levels. And the one level is when you are 
and not wrapped up in, jo in a job and so forth and can sit down and alone and ponder, the intellect seems to have a more profound quality and, you, you know, seems to be leading you towards insights. But on the job, you have these anxieties, particularly about you mentioned things about medicine and giving the right dosage and so forth. And then the mind starts getting bizarre and uh, kind of superficial and murky and going off on trips and so forth. Uh, I think this is really a classic example of uh, the intellect wanting to be in charge and to be the center of self. Whatever problem comes up, the intellect wants to say, let me take over. I can do this. Do you know what I mean? Now, the intellect is very, very uh, necessary for doing things like figuring out the correct doses. If you got rid of your intellect on your job, it would be a disaster. Do you see what I mean? But... <laughs> yes, and what hospital What hospital do you work at? <laughs> don't say. <laughs> we don't want to dig any hospitals right here. <laughs> but um, you are letting the intellect do what, it, what it's supposed to do in terms of, of figuring out the doses, but you're sort of over, looking over the intellect's shoulder. Another intellect's looking over the intellect's shoulder and worrying about, is this intellect doing this job properly? No wonder you get confused and murky. And then, the, and then, the, and then with two intellects, one looking over the other one's shoulder and, and this feedback mechanism, it's really sort of an echo feedback mechanism. It's almost, though, the, it's built into the system. I mean, in the hospital, it, it, it's like it, there's a, a need to be absolutely precise. There's no, there's just absolute, there's no um, tolerance for any imprecision. And so what is happening is it, it's on such an intense level that sometimes I think, well, it's hard to really do anything but almost be a machine. I mean, I really do feel like I'm, 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 I'm a machine, and that's, <clears throat> in a sense, that is what I, I should just allow to happen. Beautiful, exactly right. Yeah. To stop interfering with the machine. Let the machine do its business. There's a wonderful line from Zorba when the, the English guy asks him, you know, what, what kind of work do you do, you know? And he says, what kind of work do I do? He says, I got hands, I got feet, I got a brain. They do the, the jobs. Who am I to say? So this is really the basic cone of the whole spiritual practice. Yes, why don't you just let let things yeah. happen and get out of the way? It is, you're right. But but the intensity here actually can work for you. If it gets when things get very intense, if you notice if you've ever been in an accident or some sort of big crisis situation, there comes a point for most people and maybe you've experienced this where something happens, like you go on automatic pilot and the mind gets beautifully calm and clear and sort of watches. And it's quite amazing. You watch your body take over. You watch your mind think in, in the proper way of thinking. I mean, solving little things, you know, the next step to do, what has to be done. And it happens so smoothly and clearly without any confusion, without any feedback. And suddenly something deep inside says, all right, we're going to cut out all this ego bullshit and we're going to just get the job done and pushes you out, you out of the way. And so you, in a certain sense, get relegated to just being the witness of the situation with nothing to do. It is, it is complicated, though, because if, if in the, in, when this arises, and it does, what you described does happen, and, and it will work sometimes very well. And sometimes, I, I mean, it's like I, I'm just, I'm not really present. I mean, but yet everything is being done very well. But then there will, there will come a point where I'll pick up a, 
a medication to give to a patient, and I will, I will see, and all of a sudden there's like this sense of anxiety will come up because I, you know, I'm, I'm drawing up maybe the wrong dosage or something, and this just this little anxiety will just like it kicks out a whole barrage. It's like a, it's like a. Yes. Now wait, I'm going to stop you for because let's look at the exam in the moment here. There's an extraneous thought. There is. You see, the there's the mind thinking, identifying the right uh, medicine, and then identifying the right dosage and watching the, the scale to make sure you're drawing it out. And then this extraneous thought comes in, maybe I'm doing this wrong. It's, it's a thought, it's like throwing a monkey wrench right into the gears. No wonder then the whole machine starts to rattle and shake. What, what good is that thought? It's a useless thought. Now, you can't suppress the thought. Don't go around trying to suppress it. But you, I just, you can see how, how samsara works, and then there's a very good example of how anxiety arises and how, oddly enough, it makes you less efficient. It makes you a worse nurse. You become a, a nervous, undecisive, do you know what I mean? That's true, that's true. Yeah. Whereas if that thought doesn't arise, it just runs smoothly. And when it runs smoothly, I, I, I've noticed that when on nights when it is smooth, when none of that seems to be happening, I'm not really tired, and I feel ah, more yeah. energy. But it, when it does happen, I'm like completely exhausted. And this morning, I'm, I'm suffering the effect from last night, which was totally a disaster. The whole night was that way. I was real busy, and a lot of weird things were happening. And, that ang- and, I'm, and I can't suppress the anxiety, so it's mm-hmm. kind of a, I don't know. Yes, of course you're tired because you're. It's like a, a car running with the brake on. Yeah. I mean, it's using. It has to use far more fuel to get through the night than uh, if you know because it's got all the res- resistance and so forth. Than if it just let go. Now I'm going to give you a suggestion to try out. This is a practice, a way to try to cut through all this. This is a. A practice you'll find in every tradition, except perhaps Buddhism, uh, it makes use of the idea that you can have a relationship to that ground of being that we talked about. It makes, it's not an ultimate teaching, but it's a very useful one. And it makes use of this idea that since there is nothing but God, there is only one will in the world. If we want to call it God's will. And there's only one master intelligence. In other words, the little intelligence, the the ego intelligence, we could call it, gives up the idea that it's going to know what the master plan is. I'm not saying there is a master plan, but assume that if there's a master plan, God knows it and you don't. And then the practice is simply that. It's surrendering your will to God's will. And the practice is, it's one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful, and one of the most simple practices. You go into any situation, and you turn over the controls to God. It's like being on an airplane. You allow God to fly the plane, and you become the steward who goes around and asks people if they want tea or coffee and so forth. And you don't worry about where the airplane's going or whether it's going to crash or not. You just do your job. And you allow the intellect to do its job, and the rest of it you turn over to God. And every time you start finding yourself worrying about this, just release it to God. Just let go and say, well, God's will be done. And go about your business. If you make a mistake and you kill the patient, 
If that's God's will. No, I, I'm serious. I'm serious. I, I would much rather have. I would much rather have a nurse who has that attitude towards me than a nurse who's constantly worrying about if they're going to screw up. Because I'm going to say, please get me another nurse who's who's not so worried. You know what I mean? So I think a good practice for you would be to take this practice of thy will be done. And from what I know about how your mind works, I think it'd be very beneficial to have this kind of, uh, you know, a, a knife that cuts through rather than add another layer to this struggle to be mindful. Do you know what I mean? Uh -huh. Just have that that cuts through. So that'd be my advice to you. Did we cover his whole question? Was that? <laughs> I think it was. I think I it, was, it. it was a great dialogue because uh, none of us are exempt from exactly what you described. I think that's the way that certainly for me anyway. That if I if I observe my day in a mindful way, my mind does exactly what yours does. Yeah. It has constant loops that go on, and it is. It's a the metaphor you talked about. A car with a brake on is just the perfect kind of metaphor for that it's just like an excessive use of energy you know all sorts of events arise and your mind just contributes to a whole lot of superfluous stuff about that event mm -hmm. it's really nothing to do with the event except you're wanting to add stuff to it and rather than release and say to god if you will god's will be done and go about it and release all that energy how much more we could really accomplish in a day in terms of not necessarily productivity but of freeing oh absolutely of freeing our energy up to be able to just be present mm -hmm. is marvelous one thing that i've noticed that when this happens is there, there it doesn't really get like this until there's a recognition of there's an element of fear that comes up and mm -hmm. as soon as there's fear as soon as that kicks in in the, in the hospital it's like Everything takes on a different look. It's like, a, you know, this just this little sense of anxiety. Everything, it's like the world changes. Actually, I, I notice it. It's perceptible. Yes. And this is a way to release the fear. This is just what this practice is about. It's, Actually, it's I've to, used it in that way. Before. Right. So, and, and you're right. And the fear comes up because the fear, the basis of the fear is a sense of self. And the self is going to be threatened. It's going to be threatened because it'll screw up on the job or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Or it'll, it may not, it just may just look stupid. I mean, part of what yeah. the ego does, just doesn't want to look stupid, you know. Yeah. So the knot of it is this image or idea or illusion or delusion that there's some self in there that has to be protected and so forth, you know. Yeah, thanks, Joel. Appreciate that. I've got a question, but I just also wanted to make one small observation about what you were saying before I asked my question. And... Uh, that was that you mentioned how everything will be going along fine, and then uh, all of a sudden you'll notice that you were about to make a mistake or something wrong, dosage yeah. or something like that. And right in that moment, it's interesting to note that it was consciousness itself, God, that noticed that you were going to make a mistake and corrected it, but you didn't trust that, and all of a sudden you start thinking, oh, I'm going to screw up here, and that's what gets in the That's trailer. where self comes in, huh? Yeah, because the actual noticing the mistake that scared you, that was all God's will also, and happening just fine. That's a beautiful point, and that's a, uh, and that's a great lesson when I've said before, a place to watch how decisions are made. You can uh, watch this in little ways all through your day. You're about to reach for the wrong cup or something, or you're about, you know what I mean? And something notices, oh, this is wrong, and it self-corrects. And you don't have to do anything in that. And the more you trust it, the more will happen. 
And sometimes it won't happen in terms of, you know, uh, a self-correcting mechanism, but that's okay too. So it didn't happen. But the, the, the more you get out of the way, the more you see how, in fact, the mind does, it always operates the same way. It's just that when you get that, that loop, that's a good word, that feedback loop, it gets so complicated, you can't ever, you don't know what's going on, and it creates this idea there's some self in there. But it's the same, the basic simplicity of the mind is quite beautiful. That's a quite a marvelous self-correcting mechanism, too. You watch it all day long, it'll, you'll, you'll start to walk here, or, you know, you'll forget what you were doing in the middle of a task, and oh yes, if you just, if you get all nervous about it, you won't remember, but if you just, you know, allow it to happen, oh yes, that's what I was doing, and you walk back and pick up what you were doing or whatever. Can I just comment before you get into your question? I think that notion, however, has to be looked at in a way that says that, you know, the self-correcting thing is that is to say that we can't judge the outcome of whatever events happen when we're giving over to the will of God because the plane can crash. I mean, it can happen. The wrong dosage can be given. Yeah. Does that necessarily mean that you were not doing the will of God? And we don't know. Maybe you were doing the will of God. So that non-judgmental mind, or the don't know mind, has to be present even when things have the appearance of coming out that the mind would judge as inappropriate or bad or wrong, if we're really surrendering over. Yeah. That yes, and every judgment, we have to keep this also in mind, every judgment like this, and, and there are... Uh, Human beings have to judge right or wrong and, and correct it incorrect in that sense. But every judgment is based on some relative a frame of reference. There's no such thing as ultimately right or wrong. The ego's terrified that it's going to be ultimately wrong. The uh, ego can't be right or wrong. Ego doesn't exist. The, an action can be right or wrong in relation to some standard. All this is imaginary. It's the, it's the game we play. And it only applies within that. You know, so if you, if you make a mistake, the point is, yes, to learn from the mistake. You know, maybe you really thought that the dosage, the mistake came not just from carelessness, but you thought that two cc's was the correct dose and one cc happens to be the correct dose. And you give two cc's and something happens. Well, you should then make note of that only one cc is the correct dose so you don't repeat it. You know, that this is all part of the game. So you don't kill the next. Yeah. But this is. <laughs> This is, you know, it's it really, it's quite simple. I mean, it's it, the game can be very complex, but the principle is quite simple here. And none of this has anything to do with an ultimate cosmic right or wrong or any self being right or wrong. It has to do with an action being right or wrong or a piece of knowledge being right or wrong, always in relation to something else, not in itself. Mike was going to... Yes, you had a question, that's right. <laughs> we have so many looped back questions here, <laughs> questions on questions. Uh, well, my question is uh, kind of from a slightly different perspective, but uh, I'm, I've uh, been pondering Jesus' teaching uh, quite a lot recently of seek ye first the kingdom of heaven uh, and his related teachings about uh, see the lilies of the field, they taking those thought for their raiment and all that kind of stuff. And it's a very powerful and very uncompromising teaching if one takes it seriously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and I've been getting to a place where I'm finding myself taking it seriously. And um, 
and I've in, in doing so, I look at my life, how it's lived from moment to moment, and I realize how far from that practice that I am in my life. Uh, you know, in the very fact of making a mundane living and stuff, we're concerned with all kinds of things, where our next dollar is coming from, how to do this or that to be more effective in the world, to keep everything, you know, going along the way we're used to it going along and stuff. And yet, in my practice and on my path, I've been given every reason to believe that if I was just to take a big swan dive into the universe, that <laughs> God's got things pretty well under control. Uh, I would say so. <laughs> and yet, and yet, I find that I'm uh, approaching, uh, or I'm in a situation in my life where there's many, or maybe an infinite number of directions open to me. And so, so I find myself pondering this teaching and not quite sure what to do about it because, you know, of course, everything that I've ever learned, you know, in this society about being a responsible, you know, citizen and taking care of myself and doing my part in the world and everything kind of uh, finds itself at odds with Jesus' teaching of seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Can you? Yes, I can speak to that for partly uh, or a lot out of personal experience because that was the major part at the end of my path, exactly that, exactly reading those teachings and coming to the same conclusion you came to. Let me say first, however, that, again, these are one of these teachings that we confuse the practice aspect with the philosophical aspect, if I might put it that way. The teaching is to take no thought for the morrow, uh, don't worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and so forth. Now, everybody focuses on uh, the, the, the clothes, the food, the drink, and so forth, and what they miss is the I. Uh, the most radical aspect of the teaching is actually not about the activities, but about who's doing the activities. As the Bhagavad Gita says, for instance, someone, anyone who imagines I act is totally deluded. This is a wonderful teaching to, to, uh, to use as a mirror. Does your mind think that I act? Do you, are you convinced when you go around? Am I driving this car? Am I eating? Am I, uh, you know, worrying about, uh, what I should wear today and so forth? Well, according to Bhagavad Gita, if that's going on in your mind, you're totally deluded. Well, we don't realize that. Okay. <laughs> no, no, you haven't realized it. That's no, the problem. Not knowing the but, anyway. Right. Okay. So, that, okay. Now, having said that, because the teaching is not about the perfect life is to be a literal wandering mendicant with nothing but a loincloth. Then people, uh, when they realize it with a little r and understand that intellectually and philosophically, then dismiss the value of the teaching as a practice. The value of the teaching as a practice is, if you even start to do this, it'll start bringing up your attachments, your sense of self, all the obstacles, the uh, veils that uh, stand between you and God. So, for instance, uh, you know, a simple thing like getting up and going in and looking at yourself in the mirror every morning and, you know, worrying about how you look. Something that almost everybody does. They, they, you know, comb their hair and so forth. And what they're doing is, this is all self, how I'm going to appear to other people. 
right? Let's say you cut that out. I'm going to get back to your specific case, but you're a photographer and you have to, part of that, you have to have a certain image. Other people, for instance, uh, if you don't have that sort of job where it's nothing to do with anything practical, uh, why not just forget about how you look? Get your hair cut in a, uh, you know, get a, um, uh, one of those, Yes, <laughs> do that. You know, sure. Just or or just let it grow, which is you know these are the two uh, traditional ways to treat all this. Just let it all grow, and you end up looking like if you're a man, you'll end up looking like one of those Russian Orthodox priests or or whatever. Or uh, just shave it all off, as monks and nuns do. Uh, that's this is again not worrying about what you look like, uh, <clears throat> not worrying about what you wear. Okay, get. One set of clothes for winter and one set of clothes for summer. What I mean by just like all blue jeans and all black sweatshirts uh, for the winter and then all blue jeans and all t-shirts of the same color if you really want to do this for the summer. Uh, no, really. There's no going to the closet and deciding what should I wear today. There's, you know what I mean? You don't worry about it. They take no thought for it. It doesn't mean you have to walk around naked and end up being carted off to uh, you know the psycho ward. <laughs> But this will eliminate thoughts about self, what I look like, how I appear, and so forth. This is why, by the way, what, monks and nuns have one garb, not to be regimented and all that stuff. It's so you don't worry about it. Maybe a nun has three habits, but they all look alike. You don't have to, you just wear the clean one, that's all, you know. You see the purpose behind all these things. There, what I'm trying to say is there are ways you can start to put this teaching into practice in, uh, even if you're living a householder's life, even if you can't put them all completely into practice, uh, totally in the way that Jesus did by simply becoming a mendicant and just wandering and giving up home and everything. Do you know what I mean? You can find ways to start to implement these, put them into practice. And it's a wonderful practice because you think you've understood the teaching and you haven't. When you have to say, gee, am I really going to give up all these different variety of clothes and I'm just going to look the same every day to everybody? Do you know what I mean? Now, by the way, yes, see, she's already, it's already working on her just thinking about it. <laughs> she's cringing. Like when I buy something, especially. Uh -huh. Okay. Now, wait a minute. Again, I want to say that, uh, reinforce this as a practice. The idea isn't for everybody in the world to wear, you know, like Mao suits, like China once almost looked like. It's, it's an individual practice for you to learn something. And it's not necessarily a lifelong vow. Once you've learned what there is to be learned, why not wear a beautiful, colorful dress? Because there's no you wearing it anymore. But in the meantime, these are very, very powerful practices. Some of the most powerful practices. And the farther you go with it, the more you will find the power of the practice. Now, I was in a situation quite similar to yours at a, at a certain point in my spiritual path. When I'd gotten divorced, I no longer needed this job at, in Hollywood. I, I realized that it wasn't going to make me happy and all this money was, I mean, I could hardly spend it. And I decided, well, I will follow just this teaching. It might be like the lilies of the field and I will give up this job and I will, you know, buy this little Volkswagen van and go around the country. And that was a tremendously liberating uh, decision. And you put it beautifully. This is like taking the swan dive into the universe. This is really allowing God to, to take control of your life and see what happens to you. I made up my own little rules. I didn't do it 
as thoroughly as uh, Jesus did it or others uh, have done it. I had my little rules. I had a little money in the bank, you know, to, to draw on. I knew I wouldn't have to worry about money for at least a year down the line or so if I lived very, very frugally. And uh, I set off. And you read my book, and anybody who wants to know details about this can read it. I found that the really the most, uh, the attachments I never suspected or really felt was this attachment, this whole attachment to security and status and image in society. It really wasn't so much an attachment to specific things. I didn't mind giving up my Audi, the car per se, but it was, my gosh, I've worked hard to get here. And you know, Hollywood has a very short memory and it (laughs) depends a lot on context. You know what I mean? And these fears, anxieties, all the things you were talking about that happened on your job, you know, were coming out in spades. This is a good thing to happen for a spiritual seeker, by the way, because then you get to see what is holding you back, what is keeping you from making this swan dive. And the swan dive ultimately is not a, an a outward swan dive, it's an inner swan dive. It's leaping off that cliff into don't know mind. Uh, I found it to be very, very powerful practice. And even though I didn't do it all the way, and at one, uh, there were points uh, driving along in my VW van, I felt encumbered. I said, I really should do more. I should sell the van. I should, you know, really go all the way, you know. I mean, I, even at that point, you know, what what uh, three months ago had looked like death to poverty, now I felt like I still had way too much stuff. But in any case, the point here is everybody can do this practice in small ways. You can find ways to implement Jesus' teaching about don't take any thought for the morrow. You know, you can find little things in your life that are just totally extraneous, that are totally ego-serving to just drop and cut out and just not worry about them. Then, if your life situation, your, let's say, destiny or karma or whatever, puts you in a position where you don't have obligations, where a space opens up in your life, then it's a wonderful time to think about really doing the practice in a more powerful way, which I would recommend to you at this point in your life, by the way, because that is the case with you. If you dropped everything and went off on a pilgrimage, when you were a householder with responsibilities to your wife and children and so forth, it would not be a powerful, it would be a powerful practice, but it would also backfire. The negative effects of the practice would outweigh the positive effects. And very often, sometimes people do this, and really what they want to do is escape from some situation, a job that's too much to handle, or a family, or whatever. And you say, oh, well, I'm going, I'm on a spiritual path. I'm dropping everything, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's really totally selfish and uh, totally motivated by a desire to escape from your suffering, not a desire to confront your suffering, to confront your attachments, to confront your fears. Do you see what I mean? So I want to add that into this um, teaching here. But there does come a time in people's lives when this opportunity opens up. In India, the traditional classic idea of a, of a, a spiritual life in India was as a young person, you were a student. And then as a young adult, you became a householder. You built your house and your farm, farmed or did your business or whatever. Then in the, in your middle years, you start to turn over your worldly responsibilities to the younger generation coming up. You start to disentangle yourself. All this, by the way, in a very responsible, orderly fashion. And then in your last years, you became a literal mendicant. You followed Jesus' teachings literally. 
You became a sannyasin and you gave up everything and you went out into the world with a begging bowl and you even gave up your name. Somewhere along the line, you have to take that swan dive. That's what it's all about. That's really what it's all about. Inwardly, you might not have to do uh, make one change outwardly. That's what uh, Meister Eckhart said. Whoever has renounced the whole world and not renounced himself has renounced nothing. And yet you could own the whole world. And if you've renounced yourself, you've renounced everything. Somewhere along the line, you have to <laughs> jump off that cliff. You have to hold your breath and... It's not something you can will, but the closer you can get to the rim of the cliff, the better. Somewhere along, you hold your nose, you know, and you leap into the unknown. There's no other way, no, no getting around that. A lot of people like to come, they, they, oh, they get a glimpse over the edge of the cliff, and then they sit down on the edge and say, now you see, I've, I can see there's nothing down there. <laughs> Great. But they need somebody like to come along and give them a little push. Because <laughs> that's the intellect seeing there's nothing down there. But you don't know what nothing's like until you're in free fall. <laughs> then you know what nothing's like. I'm reading uh, Eddie's book that you were talking about last week, and I was just so impressed with, I mean, she's looking at losing everything, and she chooses rather than to be attached to everything that's being taken away from her to seek God, yeah. and it's just so mind-blowing just to, to share her experience yes. through her diaries. Yes, and her, her cliff, and the cliff and the emptiness she had to look into was Auschwitz. Yeah. Uh, now, that's powerful practice. And you wonder why she had a short path, you see? <laughs> I mean, that's powerful practice. She knew how to use that. She says a wonderful thing. By the way, those of you who don't know what we're talking about on the tape or in this room, last week uh, I gave a talk on Eddie Hillisum, who was a mystic and saint who died in Auschwitz, and she left a journal, and the journal covers about three years. And she goes from being a very interesting but but not deeply spiritual uh, young woman of 27 uh, with all sorts of interests in our art and literature and love affairs and this and that. In three years, she goes into being just this incredible incredible mystic who volunteered to go to the concentration camps. Mm. I mean, with, with everybody else who refused to go into hiding or try to escape because she wanted to be with her people and serve as best she could, even if just to give them a drink of water. And at one point, she talks, she writes about, as she's, this is not, you know, this is something that developed in her life. It was not something she started out with or was born with. She writes about those people who are trying to escape. And all said, it's our duty, it's everyone's duty to survive, you know, and so forth. And she said, this, uh, first of all, that's bullshit. That wasn't quite the term she used, but uh, uh, that's the power with which she expressed it. She said, you know, because every, for everybody who goes, somebody else takes your place. So, you know, she said, that's just a rationalization. <clears throat> and then she said, uh, and then, but she saw the people who were saving themselves. What were they saving? They were saving a, uh, I've forgotten exactly the word. Uh, a bundle of fear. A bundle of fear and anxiety and so forth. She could see what they were, what they were getting out of the situation it wasn't happiness and joy. That's not what they were saving. They were just saving their, this, 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 you know, terrified, guilt-written little selves. It wasn't worth saving to her. Why not take the swan dive and be free? Why not, as Zorba says, cut the rope? <laughs> 
That's another way of putting it. Cut the rope and be free. You know? So, you know, when you read a, a, a passage like this, The Lilies of the Field, and also in uh, Buddhist, the early Pali Buddhist literature, you read about, um, you know, giving up householder life and going on the road and the freedom of the road and giving up all these other cares behind and so forth. There, there are lots of romantic, almost sounding passages about it that sound wonderful. We tend to think we either have to accept it or reject it. I mean, you either have to do the whole thing or nothing. But you can do, in, you know, to the extent in your life that is uh, uh, responsible and is permissible within the bounds of acting selflessly and uh, to what you need. Some people need to, to, you know, to, to do the whole swan dive outwardly and uh, before they can do it in, inwardly. And some other people don't, you know. They just, you start to give up attachments, you start to see the self, you start to penetrate it, and, you know, some people just fly off the cliff from a much greater distance away. Other people have to plod up to the thing. This is, this is up to God, too. This is, you know, this is why it's silly to compare your path to somebody else's path and all that. Did you tell that story? Um, I think you've told this story about, it's a Buddhist story about uh, the uh, fellow who's being chased by a tiger through the jungle, and he comes to the edge of the cliff, and he jumps over, but he hangs on with one branch, and he looks down, and there's the other tiger down below waiting for him, and so he's in a, he's in the ultimate bind, but he glances over and looks at the wild strawberry, and takes the strawberry as he falls down, and that's, you see, this is, there's nothing else to do. Right, He's run from the tiger. <laughs> you know, this is the tiger of life, the tiger of life and death, you know, that's chasing us, that we're all running from. <laughs> and he's run till he's got the edge of the cliff and he's climbed over. And then there's a tiger waiting for him in the bottom. This is don't know mine. There's nothing else he can do except enjoy what's there. And this is what the meaning of the strawberry is. When the mind comes to a stop in that sense, this is don't know mine. And then in the space that don't know mine, you know, and, and, you know, people say, you're crazy. Look at you enjoying that, eating that strawberry. Don't you know the predicament you're in? But it's the, we're all in this predicament. This is what's so hysterical. We're all, we're all headed for Auschwitz. We're all on transport, as I said last week. Every single one of us. I mean, so, you know, are, are you going to uh, enjoy the strawberries on the way, or what are you going to do? You can't turn the train around. <laughs> Any one more question, or should we, uh, should we bring the meeting to a close? Uh-oh. <laughs> it's not a question. It's yes. like I got a lot of answers to something that I've been pondering. Um, I have to bake my own bread because I can't have salt in the bread. So I was short on time, and I was baking it outside. I put the machine outside, and I had to move some boxes. And as I did it, there were these two fat earthworms there, but I was short on time. And I just, the sun was beaming on them. They were squirming. And part of me thought I should move them to the dirt. And then, oh, there isn't time to fuss. And I left those poor things. I, I did move the, the cart over them so the sun wasn't directly on them. And I just brushed away thought of them. And then as I got into meditation, the, 
their image kept coming to me, and I thought maybe I should run home and see if they were okay and take care of those poor. Then the thought started coming now, why can't I be more compassionate? Why can't I just take the time and do it? And then the discussions through here about not having this compassion come out and regretting not being the way I was, and then I thought, okay, well, I'll leave it all up to God. Uh, it's up to God to make me more compassionate. And so that's the, the feeling I have right now. But it's interesting here, because uh, the, the problem here is time and not compassion. If we cultivate compassion, open ourselves to being compassionate, then we leave it up to God whether we can act or not. Our responsibility is, as Meister Eckhart again says, it's the love and the intention that counts, not the results of your work that's important. You see what I mean? Now, I don't know whether you could have or could not have taken the time. I mean, you know, what are the parameters here? There are obviously some situations where you could not take the time to help some earthworms in terms of the relative scale of things. You know, if, if uh, a member of your family was dying and you were rushing to call, dial the paramedics in moments where, you know, important, you have to judge, no, I, a human being is worth more than an earthworm in the relative scale of things, not ultimately, and you would leave the earthworms. God didn't allow you time in that case to act on the compassion. But to still have the compassion, to still feel the compassion, do you see what I mean? That's what's important. Again, it's not the results of your action. But to be open to that, even with earthworms, which, you know, most people aren't. <laughs> most people, you know, and this is a, a sign of, um, you know, increasing a mindfulness and appreciation and selflessness in the world. And often this brings uh, a lot of sorrow and tears and stuff. And, and all traditions write about that, you know. You become suddenly compassionate and open to this, and you become aware of all the suffering in the world, you know, and all these things. And it's also humbling. You, 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 Therese, you know, can't fix all the world's problems. That part you have to turn over to God. But you're always available. You're always on call in case God gives you the time that, yes, you would do something which most people would think is stupid, and that is take the time to make some earthworms more comfortable. You see what I mean? Well, then I, I, I really screwed up because all I, I could have just been here two minutes later and you'd have all been fine without me. There was nothing. It was oh. just in this image of I like to be on time sort of thing. Ah, well, that, that okay. Now that's a teaching. <clears throat> now look, now the earthworms are God appearing in the form of teachers to her. Do you see what I mean? Again, there's no, there's never a cause for guilt in here. Right. The conditioning you didn't, you're not responsible for. Guilt is really, uh, guilt is real ego, you know. I'm responsible. Boy, that's the ego just, you know, trying to really, uh, make a, a stand, a desperate stand. But uh, rather than give up and be happy, the ego's gonna make a desperate stand. No so, uh, <laughs> you know, yes. So, okay, so here's God, here's Jesus willing to appear in front of you and suffer to teach you something. It is just the whole Christian mythos played out right before your eyes. Do you know what I mean? I used to kid um, uh, Jennifer, and I wasn't kidding, but it would, the Dharma cat, he's a bodhisattva because he showed up to evoke Jennifer's compassion. He was a stray cat, for those of you who don't know, several years ago, showed up at our door, and we had already a lot of cats, and Jennifer started by chasing him off. And she'd shoo them. She has this hissing sound that they don't like. And, and you know, she shooed them off. And he was a skinny, you know, cat. And then she was coming home one night, and um, 
She saw him limping around, you know, half starved to death, and suddenly her heart opened up. She brought the cat in. She got him, took him to the hospital. The vets, you know, think she went on a big uh, cat compassion spree. In fact, what you got, the other cats neutered and trapped them, and we ended up with a lot more cats. Oh no, we'd already gotten those cats, hadn't we? Yeah. But anyway, and then he came, and then he uh, uh, slept under our bed. Then other cats did this. And uh, he was so weak at first, he couldn't get to the cat box and poop and pee, so she went and cleaned up after. I mean, this was, what a change around, you see what I mean? Now, uh, here's this, here, you can look at it, and, and this is a mythic way of looking at it, but it's, it's not just mythic, don't dismiss it. It is consciousness taking form to teach you. It is the bodhisattva vow, it is Christ, it's the whole story of Christ. God becomes man and suffers so that you can learn to love. That's what it's all about. And he performed that function the whole time. I mean, he was an incredible cat. Everybody met that cat, uh, responded to that cat practically. Even other cats around here. I once talked to a woman uh, across the street. She's got a lot of cats. And, I was, and he was uh, wandering off and I was looking for him. And I said, do you see this? cat. She said, that skinny black cat? She said, I don't know what it is about him. Our cats drive off every other cat that comes around, but he comes to eat and he eats out of their bowl and they don't, uh, they just, you know, stand back and let him. They could see he was a great bodhisattva. <laughs> so again, you see what I mean? Treat the situation as a teaching, treat it as an opportunity, or you have something to learn from it, you know. It's always something rather than then get guilty and feel, oh, I screwed up. You know what I mean? We can only screw up in a practical sense. We cannot screw up really morally except by closing down and shutting off. But when we talk about something, yes, you screw, I can say, yeah, you know, you screwed up with that medicine. There's a definite thing here. There's a task to be done and so forth, you know. But in terms of our practice, as long as we're, and this is the importance of humility, to be humble to say, I don't know, and you're always open to a teaching, to something manifesting, you know, then, then that's, no matter what happens, that's not screwing up. It's only when you get arrogant and you know everything and, and you close off and that, you know, becomes self-centered. Stop seeing yourself in the center, Krishna tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, or you will perish. Interesting. Well, thank you. That that helped me. I just avoided a day of guilt. Good. <laughs> That's a great story, too, because um, it's not that we have to wait on God to make us compassionate, I don't think, because I think that we are compassionate in our true nature, and it's simply a matter of availing ourselves of the opportunity of being compassionate when God provides those opportunities. That's right, and God is always providing us. You know, it's like all around you trying to wake you up. Everything around you, the whole world is trying to wake you up, and we're blind to it, you know what I mean? And all we have to do is open our eyes, you know? I mean, there's plenty of opportunity for compassion, you know? And if you don't, if you live in a very nice neighborhood and everybody's well off, go look out and you'll find earthworms <laughs> and bugs. I mean, it's, 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 it's teeming with life forms, this, uh, this existence. It's wonderful. Okay, now let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library and chit-chat and whatever as usual.